Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Heyo, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, coming at you. Well, not really. I'm, I'm here. I mean, not even through the airwaves, because you can pause me anytime, I guess. But don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just here. <laughs> Josh, I got overconfident. Okay, <laughs> so came in thought, came in pretty hot on that intro, there, buddy. I thought I thought I could hold it. I can't. I have shamed myself. <laughs> it's an alternate week, which means it's time for another journal club. Yay! Woo! Now I know you all probably want something other than the pandemic updates. But a few of you want those too. So we're going to do a bit of both in a grab bag this week. Uh, we'll start with a very exciting possibility for tracking the disease. India has created a cheap and quick test for COVID-19 that looks like it's going to be pretty good. And more importantly, is not nasal. Yeah, yeah. So what? what's the substrate? I think you can... It's a paper-based test. No, but I think uh, you still do have to collect the snot. It said a group of Indian researchers has created a cheap paper-based test for coronavirus that could provide results fast as a pregnancy test with results equally yeah. as welcome, I'd imagine. Yeah, um, <laughs> it is. So I am scrolling down a little bit here, Josh, and unfortunately, or fortunately, um, you do still have to do the nasal swab to collect the sample, but then you just place it on this paper, which you're going to tell us about. 
The test is called the Faluda test after a famous Indian fictional detective would give results in about an hour and cost $6 and 75 cents. I don't even think you can get a fast food meal for that price. No, not anymore. (laughs) Maybe when we were just a little bit younger. Yeah, this is, this is really cool. This is the same type of thing Actually, it's it's a little bit more advanced than the type of lateral flow um, ELISAs that we have in pregnancy tests, as a for instance. But it's the same type of look, is that you put your sample on a strip of paper, and then that strip of paper kind of wicks the, uh, you know, whatever it needs to find down the strip. And I guess if it changes in a particular way, you can tell if it's positive or not. be manufactured by a company called Tata or Tata. Yep. No, it's, it's Tata. Or Tata. <laughs> yeah. So Tata is all for a very long time in India, famous for making Indian cars. So it's one of the most common Indian car brands that you'll find even to this day. Oh, that's an adorable name for a car. Yeah, yeah. So and and they've moved into like electronics and technology and everything else. Like yeah, So I guess much like the car, the test is simple, precise, reliable, and scalable. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. So it was tried on about 2,000 patients initially, including some who were already known positives for the coronavirus. And the test at that time, with probably some equally simulating scientific name like X2, 3, 12, 15, B, you know, (laughs) Apple monkey carburetor. Um, Sure, sure, yeah. (laughs) Instead, they found this test had a 96% sensitivity and a 98% specificity. This doesn't mean that like the accuracy is that high, that it still means that there's a good amount of false negatives and false positives that you'll find when you start scaling it up. But it's very, very good. The idea is that a highly sensitive test can detect almost everyone who has the disease and a high specificity test can detect to rule out everyone who doesn't have the disease. And if you're that good a detective, clearly you must be the Indian Sherlock Holmes, Faluda. Santosh, have you ever heard of Faluda? I I hadn't before now. And, you know, bad Indian. But it looks like this is an amazing childhood type of, uh, you know, wonderful fictional character that a lot of young people grow up with when they're reading their literature. So we were we were arguing over whether or not it comes in comic book form or something you can find on Audible, but he Faluda is in a collection of Bengali short stories by an author Ray Chowdhury, and he's a man of around twenty seven, six two, adept in martial arts, with a superb analytical ability and a observation skill known as magajastra magajastra oh brain weapon gotcha so it trans yeah yeah yeah. so it translates to you know turning your brain into a weapon so he is a fan of sherlock holmes he's skillful at sleight of hand but he also has a very colombo vibe where he confronts the villain after a you know basically lecturing them for a while into confessing their crime. 
So I guess he's also like the Indian Angela Lansbury. Murder he wrote or murder he found, sure. Now that we've established why this test is called that, although I don't know that it has PCR, really doesn't have a lot of martial arts abilities. So there's two kinds of tests. One is a PCR test. The other is an antigen test. What's the difference between those for detecting COVID, Santosh? Sure. So for PCR, you've got a stretch of RNA or DNA. And what you're trying to do is very precisely amplify that stretch of DNA or RNA that you're trying to find and no other kind of non-specific stretches of DNA or RNA. So it's a really beautiful test because if you know the target that you're looking for, you can make a very simple primer out of a chain of nucleic acids and put it into a reaction and then just make lots and lots and lots of that little stretch of DNA, and then detect it in a number of ways. So, you know, you might try to look for it at the right size, or you might have the ability to put it through fluorescence. So it starts to, you know, make a bunch of fluorescent lights as soon as the the primer comes on and it, it makes the right stretch of DNA. But the beautiful thing about it is you can make the primer long enough where you can make it extremely precise, but you do have to have the genetic material around. Antigen testing is you usually use an antibody, a manufactured or a harvested antibody, to detect a certain part of a surface of a cell, or in the case of a virus, either the envelope or the capsid, so that the antibody actually lands on there. And then you can have a little, again, fluorescent marker at the tip of the antibody so that when you have the combination of the antigen and antibody, then you can have it hook up to another antibody in a different way so that it stays on a particular membrane and you can have a reader read the fluorescence on there. Um, you can also do this under a microscope. And then you can say, oh, there's actually like the actual cas- capsid or the envelope there so that it's a little bit more reliable to say that there's like a whole virus or a quote unquote replicating or a living virus there. Generally speaking, the DNA test is a lot more specific and then can be a little bit more overly sensitive. The antibody or antigen testing can be almost as specific, but a little bit less sensitive, um, If depending on what kind of antibody that you have. So the sample collection for Faluda is similar to the PCR test, but uses CRISPR to give you all those extra repeats that you need. Now, India has been the first country to develop this, but they are not the only one. And there are several companies in the United States working on similar tests. Uh, One of the most mentioned is developed by Sherlock Bioscience. So apparently... Genetics remains a hobby of uh, Holmes and his analogs. And it actually has (laughs) already been approved for emergency use by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So some of these are rapid tests in a county near you. For PCR, Josh, you need a, a reaction chamber. You need someplace where you can put the samples in and you need a machine to ramp up the temperature and ramp it back down in 
regular cycles so that you create this chain reaction, polymerase chain reaction. But with this kind of technology, it's really neat. You're still reading genetics, but the CRISPR-Cas9 doesn't require that temperature shift. So you can actually just have it sitting there on the membrane waiting for a very specific stretch of nucleic acids to come and kind of fall into that that pocket and you'll probably have a um what we call either a template or a guide rna that can match up exactly with that stretch of rna from the virus and then the enzyme clamps down and does something where you have a chemical reaction and the paper changes color so uh, it's really really cool because you're using the same kind of genetic technology but you don't need the machine then that's especially awesome because now it's mobile. So you don't have to have a center where you send the test to. You can just do it where you're at. Moving on to the next story, uh, here's another one right up your alley, Santosh. Aerosols have been the hotly debated topic for COVID lately. You know, yeah. is it yeah. is it a mode of transmission? Is it not? How much, you know, do we have to worry about it? Because there's a huge deal, uh, you know, epidemiologically, because it'll determine how and when restaurants can open, bars can open, any really kind of indoor thing. So we've been talking back and forth about droplets. Before we go into the next story, what's what's your current knowledge of the of the recommendations? Of the recommendations. So is this is swung back and forth. The, <laughs> this is swung back and forth so much. It's it's a little crazy because if if there's a high rate of aerosolization in the community, that means that the types of masks that we were advocating for, which are either the cloth masks or you know the 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 paper masks, the surgeon style masks that we have often talked about it's not that they won't cut it, but they're a lot less useful than what we originally thought. But, you know, we'd have to shift everything around. I'm not sure. Right now, right now, as far as I'm concerned, in the hospital, when we go out, the recommendation is still to use that either the cloth, double cloth, uh, double layer, or a uh, surgeon style, the paper mask. And that seems to be very, very protective still, such that you don't have to have something like an N95 unless you're in the hospital and you're doing what's called an aerosolizing procedure, meaning that you're putting an endotracheal tube down there, or uh, in in some cases, you're, you're giving a person a nebulizer to give them an aerosol treatment for something like albuterol, where those little droplets would actually get chopped up into tiny, tiny little droplets, which can then float on the air a much longer distance than just like those, you know, six to eight feet that we talk about normally with what we call droplets. So I, I think right now, Josh, we're holding at, you don't have to worry about aerosolization everywhere, just in select areas. And that's basically what this study confirmed, but with lasers. <laughs> Wait. Were those lasers attached to man-eating sharks? <laughs> that was a nope, horrible time. Nope, just lasers. Oh, Not going to do any follow-ups about how hard it is to get man-eating sharks. A new study carried out by researchers at University of Amsterdam's Vanderwaals Zeeman Institute 
suggests that while aerosol micro droplets do carry the virus, they're not really good at it as long as the building is well ventilated. This has always been the issue, right, Josh, is that this is why we don't want places opening up that are closed buildings that even if you want to open up restaurants or whatever it is, just have it outdoors because it drops your risk of transmission just by a ton. A mixed team of physicists and medical doctors use laser technology and aerosol droplets to recreate Star Wars and then study the risk of aerosol spread, including <laughs> how much it lingers in the air and the risk of transmission. So they aimed to look at the amount of droplets that would be expected when people speak or cough. And to do that, they had people speak and cough into a laser beam and a jet nozzle was used <laughs> while they were sprayed in the face with a jet nozzle used to mimic tiny aerosol droplets. <laughs> well, and we shouldn't mix it up, right? The aerosol is micro droplets, so it's a much smaller size. And droplets, which is what we say droplet precautions, Josh and I, for instance, are much larger, heavier droplets that have a tendency to fall out of the air after a short distance of travel. The human and the machine each fired their respective droplets and micro droplets <laughs> at each other <laughs> See, through Josh, the path of a laser. machines working together. Well, sure, as long as we don't give them intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> we made it this one smart enough to cough and sneeze at another person. Oh, you're right. We better keep a close eye on it. <laughs> However, the basic knowledge about the or the end of the study was that as long as buildings are well ventilated, the risk is actually surprisingly low, not non-existent, just uh -huh. low. The general conclusions that they've drawn until, you know, they a few other papers can start to support it, is that if you enter an area a few minutes after somebody has coughed in the after somebody has coughed in that area who is a potential carrier, your risk of infection... Without a mask. Exactly. The risk yeah. of infection is not substantial. And it's even lower if you're wearing a mask. And if that person was only speaking instead of coughing, it's even lower than that. Because the larger the droplet, the faster it falls to the ground. And the less time it's around to spread its infection. And the aerosol droplets, which are very small and highly transmissible, especially without a mask are so tiny they get ventilated and ev essentially evaporate or move on quite quickly. This is really, really wonderful news. Essentially, what we were worried about is that someone could be sick in a room, do something, talking, coughing, leave, and then that room was still infectious. That was the fear that we had, that it was still sticking around. And by the way, Josh, this is very relevant in terms of why colds and respiratory illnesses are so prevalent during the winter months in a temperate climate, right? Because the air gets cold and dry. And if you have a cold, dry atmosphere, that means that these droplets can hang around a little bit better without getting other droplets in the air just from ambient moisture glomming onto it and falling down to the ground. So we are getting into those winter months where cold and flu viruses are going to be easier to transmit. And if it was aerosolized as well, you know, airborne, then it really would have been a disaster. But I think this is really good evidence. It's not perfect, but it kind of adds to this kind of seesaw of evidence that we have that more than likely aerosolization is not a good carrier of coronavirus in the wild.
Now, in many countries, there's a, a government rule about the number of air changes per hour that buildings have to have. And in most modern buildings, an ACH, as the HVAC world calls it, of about four or higher is done. And in that case, uh, aerosols do not persist for a long time. So, again, I'm not getting hard numbers out of this, which is a little disappointing, but they have them. I guess they just haven't published uh, sufficiently. It came out in Physics of Fluids, so they're looking more at the motion rather than the exact percentages of the population. So, they continue to recommend you know, social distancing. This does potentially open a path. To, as long as you maintain that six feet of social distance, it does potentially open a path to resume indoor dining and even larger numbers than it's currently been allowed to open. And maybe, just maybe, even the occasional bar or two. Although, thank goodness that we are not in the position to have to make those decisions for the entire nation. Yeah, yeah, that's... I, I do not envy that burden it's it's a lot it is some positive news on the whole so thanks amsterdam you crazy laser kids (laughs) i really i'm i'm happy about it it's a it's a really wonderful thing and we'll see this this is not by far the end of the story as we love to say in medicine and science more studies are needed (laughs) clinical correlation required So. But lending some additional support to that theory is the fact that most airline flights are having relatively lower than expected cases of infection. High air changes per hour required on a pressurized flight seems to be doing a pretty good job of preventing disease transmission as long as people wear masks. Does that mean you know, we're going to recommend everybody run out and start flying again. Mm, Not quite yet. (laughs) I would, yeah, I would hold, I would hold, especially as because of the winter, because, you know, people, I, I think logically it makes sense, but it's still kind of heartbreaking. People are losing patience essentially, uh, and, and wanting to kind of break out, uh, and, and do that kind of a thing. But because of all that, it's probably a bad idea to go out right now. Let's move on to something cheerier, although that's been some good pandemic news on both of those. We may have found a way that uh, mice could be treated for diabetes using just electromagnetic fields, which could pave the way to less needle-based therapies for humans. Ooh. Oh, yeah, that's good. But right now, if you have diabetes that requires management, you really only have two options. For a time, you can use oral medications, of which there are many, and the correct one should be decided you know, in close consultation with your doctor. Or there's injections of insulin and its analogs, which give you a much tighter control, but for many people have a few barriers to easy use. The main issue is pain, right? Being able to inject that's the that's the biggest problem that you have and you can run out of sites where you can inject where you no longer have neuropathic pain and and things like that so uh, that that's really the biggest barrier and uh yeah if there if there's any skin conditions or anything like that where you can't put the nail without fear of like infection those are all like a big deal 
So in the future, and the distant future, let's be let's be clear. A sure. third option centered around electromagnetic fields regulating uh-huh. blood sugar may be available. And that's what this okay. study was about. And it was tried with mice. So a completely non-invasive method. So Calvin Carter, a postdoctor student or a postdoc at the University of Iowa, was working with mice for a totally unrelated study of the effects of EMFs on the brain and behavior of animals when his colleague, Sonny Huang, asked him to borrow some mice for his PhD project, which I imagine is him knocking on the door in like a patched lab coat with a big <laughs> tin cup, just saying, please, sir, can you spare no. some mice? I'm just a lowly grad student. Uh, there's substantially more than that, and there are ethical things in the way and everything. You weirdo, but sure. Hey, mate, okay. spare a mouse or two. Yeah. <laughs> spare a little mouse for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. No, you weirdo no it's nothing like that (laughs) the gray one the white one the one spinning on the wheel the one drinking water oh nothing nothing at all we don't we don't break out into well okay yeah we break out into into song from time to time but (laughs) it's not like that well he wanted to borrow these mice that require because his project involved him drawing blood and measuring blood sugar levels so all of the mice, and the reason he asked was that all of these mice Carter was working with had type 2 diabetes, so they could be expected to have a reasonably good control for higher blood sugar. But okay. in a classic, you know, sitcom science oops moment, Huang was shocked to find the mice had normal blood sugar levels. Oh. This led to the, found the beginning of the study that if the findings held up, this could impact diabetes. So exposure to these fields for short periods of time reduces blood sugar, normalizes the body's response to insulin, and they did this by removing livers of mice, studying the effects both on the individual livers as well as the living mice. And experiments suggest that it alters the signaling of something called a superoxide molecule that prolongs the activation of an antioxidant response and thus rebalances the human body or the, in this case, mouse body's response to insulin, which not only is it great in the moment, apparently the effects are long-lasting, meaning greater than an hour, opening the possibility of a therapy that could be applied during sleep to manage diabetes throughout the day. So if this could even cut down substantially on the need for people who still have to inject, that would be amazing. I thought this was super amazing. It was a great study. It was well-controlled. And the the data makes some sense. It, it This is something that we had been looking at for a while. Now, uh, <laughs> please, people, don't just go out and get these magnet rings that you put on your wrist or whatever nonsense that you pick up at the mall. Relative yeah, do those to the uh, body, belly massagers. Oh, would the you brrr. stop? Yeah. <laughs> You're a horrible human being. Stop well, okay, it. all right. So, Before, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt your warning briefly to say that they have already started some human experiments in the sense that. They have done this now to human liver cells that were treated with electromagnetic fields of currently unrevealed frequencies, but low energy for six hours. And those liver cells showed 
a surrogate marker for insulin sensitivity did drastically and statistically significantly improve, which does lend some hope that it may be possible to eventually translate this therapy to humans. But we're talking about an individual liver cell versus an entire human. Yeah, yeah. And and this is kind of the frustrating thing where, you know, people are all, see, I told you with the magnets. No, no. This was a, a kind of, not, not a high energy field, but it was a very strong magnetic field for the size of the mouse or the cell and everything. And it was done in a very, very precise way. So this is really not one of these things that you just kind of toss out there and and say, Oh, you know, go ahead and and you know, magnetize this that and the other. In order to do this properly, we will have to examine what this does to a full-grown human with an equivalent magnetic field and be careful about this because this is not a negligible magnetic field. This is really really strong. So, you know, you're also going to have to make sure that the person doesn't have things like, you know, magnetic or ferromagnetic stuff inside of them that could all of a sudden start heating up and burning the way that could happen with a MRI. So this is, it's cool. I was cool. just about to say, we're only, we're only about 20 years away from yeah. MRI, you know, taking a trip through the MRI drive through to yeah. uh, cure your diabetes. I'm just picturing somebody yeah. with like a milkshake <laughs> as they go in and then coming oh, out no, holding no, just, like a lettuce wrap. Is, no. <laughs> Next phase is actually going to be working with pigs and pig hearts. So we are still many, many years, you know, I, I'd say at least five to 10 away from uh, human trials and or potential therapies. So sure. within our lifetime, but not, not the near future. Gotcha. The last one is equally interesting. Uh, artificial blood vessels with, you know, a little bit extra bionic <laughs> blood vessels. Yeah, this is so awesome. This is hopefully going to help a lot of people because there are times when you need to either rebuild, reinsert, or have an extra blood vessel and, and anything that you can get, which is like biocompatible, where you don't have to grow something new or transplant something is wonderful. So there's a lot of different tissue engineered blood vessels that have been created. Um, essentially, that's what a stent is. You know, it's a mechanical support for a blockage of a blood vessel. But a lot of them have limitations. You know, you may have to be on blood thinners to prevent clots, or you may have to have enough space that the stent can even do its work. You know, too much blockage, and it doesn't matter how good the artificial blood vessel is. So... Researchers in China and Switzerland have developed electronic blood vessels that can be actively tuned to address subtle changes in the body after, implant after implantation. So, you know, you tune and say, oh, here's what conditions are going through. Let's, I don't know, maybe irradiate our blood or not irradiate. Let's uh, shoot some electromagnetic fields into the blood and treat it. Your blood sugar is high or let me Hulk size expand in a blocked artery. <laughs> so, um, now, these particular ones are made are flexible and biodegradable, which decreases the risk of clotting and replaced key arteries in rabbits during trials, according to a paper in the journal Matter. 
Now, they also note that just like the previous study, this is the early days and a lot more work is needed before human trials. Are they responsive? Are they actually able to like, you know, contract and relax as you need to? Because that's the toughest thing, right? This is one thing I'd love to see if the blood vessels are actually responsive to things like flow and pressure, because that's really much more important than just having a tube that can convey the blood. So currently in the lab, electrical stimulation from the blood vessels would increase local proliferation and migration of endothelial cells, which basically means that it acts as a magnet to draw wound healing factors to a site. So it can give you Wolverine-like powers of regeneration, (laughs) uh, or more accurately, make it easier or promote wound healing in conjunction with other accepted therapies, non-mutant power related. (laughs) Oh, so this is really nice. I wasn't really thinking about this either, but okay. It's not Wolverine listeners. Okay. But (laughs) there, there is a potential really beautiful thing here where if you had a burn or if you had tissue that was getting dead or gangrenous because the blood loss, blood flow has been lost to there, you could reconnect the blood flow into that area so you didn't lose that piece of tissue. So I'm even thinking of like if you had to reattach a finger or if you had to do a skin graft or if you had a burn or something like that, that this, this is really, really cool. They also managed to integrate the circuitry with a electroporation device, not portation, poration, which basically applies an electrical field to make cell membranes more permeable, allowing things to be packaged into them, like medication, for instance. And they used it to deliver a fluorescent protein or fluorescent protein DNA into three different kinds of blood vessel cells. So it secretes into the local cells. Oh, this is so neat. I mean, this is vasculogenesis. This is literal growth of the the actual blood vessels. So the electronic ones are just implanted to kind of be there at first, right? But the the actual, the downstream effect, which is the amazing part, is really that you can regrow what was lost. Is that fair? Like, so, like so, would you say like Wolverine? No, <laughs> not completely like Wolverine or Deadpool, but yeah, we're, I guess we're getting there. There's still a lot of work to do. The next stage is to try and use the electronic blood vessels with even smaller electronics. So sensors that can have, you know, measuring blood velocity, blood pressure, blood sugar, and be every part of it fully biodegradable. So right now the casing is, but some of the electronics, I don't know that they necessarily are. And that's it for this week's Journal Club. Woo! As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used to research the show. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, and if you're able to, and you've quarantined for two weeks (laughs) with frequent tests... (laughs) (laughs) Gather a circle.
Gather a close circle of your innermost friends. Oh my god. <laughs> just to recapture a bit of normality and happy travels. <laughs> Bye everything. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.